It was in the middle of yoga class, balancing on one hand and one leg, that I figured out what I was going to talk about in this sermon. It had been a very chaotic day in the middle of a very chaotic several weeks. It had been the kind of 10-hour workday where I didn't have time to eat, where everybody needed to ask me a question or get my advice, where the concerns of patients and colleagues and family seemed almost overwhelming. It was the kind of day where there were loads of unfolded laundry and bathrooms to be cleaned waiting for me when I got home. And instead of tackling that to-do list at the end of a to-do day, I went to yoga. Because yoga creates space for me, where I'm just in my body, feeling what is happening and being in the moment. So much of my day, I am not in my body. I'm in my head. I'm planning and thinking and worrying and wondering and fixing. And when life gets stressful, it's even harder for me to turn off my brain. It goes in cycles of anxiety that sometimes spin larger and larger until it feels like there's nothing good anymore and everything is terrible and how can I fix it because obviously it is my job to fix it all. On my yoga mat, returning to my breath, reconnecting with my body, there is nothing to fix, nothing to solve. It is just moving and breathing, one way that I center myself in the middle of a chaotic and challenging world. Our service today is focused on forgiveness, and it was sort of surprising to me that yoga was where I realized what I was going to talk about in this sermon, because it seems to me that the point of yoga is centeredness, not forgiveness. But as I hung out there balancing and breathing and trying not to fall over, I realized that being centered and reconnecting with ourselves is the first step to forgiveness. We can't get to forgiveness in the midst of chaos making space to simply be with ourselves, connecting with ourselves and connecting with God can set us on the path to forgiving others. I wanted to start today by telling you the story of two brothers. Isaac and Rebecca have been waiting for children for decades. Finally, when Isaac is 60, Rebecca has twins, boys that fight even when they're in the womb. Esau is born first, and Jacob follows right behind, clinging to his brother's heel. Their names reflect their birth. Esau means hairy, since evidently he was born with lots of hair, and Jacob means to follow, or maybe more significantly, to supplant. As the boys grow, they're very different. Esau is active, loving the outdoors, hunting and fishing and exploring. He's his father's boy. Jacob is quieter, preferring to stay inside, and he was the favorite of his mother. Because Esau was born first, he had the birthright. All that his father owned would pass to him. But Jacob wanted that birthright for himself. One time when Esau came in from hunting and was very hungry, Jacob was making a wonderful smelling stew, and he told Esau, I'll give you some of this stew if you give me your birthright. Esau must have been incredibly hungry, or Jacob must have been an incredible cook, because Esau said yes and sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Rebecca, too, wanted Jacob to be the favored son, so much that when her husband Isaac was old and called for his son Esau to give him a blessing, Rebecca helped Jacob to disguise himself as Esau, putting on Esau's clothing and covering his arms with fur to feel like Esau's hairy arms. Old Isaac smelled Esau's smell and felt the furry arms and believed Jacob to be Esau. And Isaac blessed Jacob 
and ate his prepared food. Later, Esau comes into the tent with the food that he has prepared, ready for Isaac's blessing, and that's when they both realized that they'd been tricked. But once the blessing had been given, it evidently could not be taken back. Esau's birthright and his father's blessing had both gone to Jacob. This understandably made Esau furious, and he vowed that when his father died, he would then kill his brother for supplanting his place twice. Rebekah heard Esau's rant and told Jacob to leave right away, to get away from Esau's wrath and go to live with his uncle Laban for a time, to get Esau time to get over his anger. Well, he definitely gave Esau some time, because at least 14 years pass, and several chapters of Genesis, which almost all tell Jacob's story, not Esau's. But finally, Jacob leaves with his wives and children, heading back to his homeland where his brother Esau lives. Before he reaches Esau, in the passage we heard today, he sends out messengers, offering Esau livestock and other lavish gifts as a hope that Esau was no longer angry with him. Jacob receives word that Esau is coming toward him with 400 men, and he is terrified that his party is about to be slaughtered. But instead of anger, Esau approaches him with joy, hugging him and weeping, meeting Jacob's wives and children with excitement. And after a time of reunion that has gone better than Jacob ever thought it might, Esau suggests that they travel on together to Esau's home, where they can all rest. Jacob declines, stating that he needs to move more slowly than Esau due to the children and cattle traveling with him and that he will meet up with Esau at Esau's home. So Esau goes on ahead. But the interesting thing is, is that instead of following his brother as he'd promised, Jacob took a different path. He never caught up with Esau, and he never visited Esau's house. We don't know much more about the relationship these brothers had because while there are more stories about Jacob, there isn't that much more about Esau. We know that Esau had descendants, and we know that he and Jacob came together at least one more time to bury their father Isaac. But that's it. So I definitely do not claim to be an Old Testament scholar, and I am sure that there's a lot more to learn about this story. But in reading it, I have a lot of things that I wonder about. I wonder why the scripture focuses so much on Jacob, the one who schemed and lied in order to get the blessing and the birthright. I'd like to know more about Esau, the brother who stayed home. And especially, I wonder how long Esau waited for Jacob to arrive, and how he felt when he realized that Jacob was actually never planning to come to his house. How did he feel about that extravagant forgiveness that he gave Jacob, when Jacob didn't seem to reciprocate? Some scholars suggest that Esau, the one who loved being outside, hunting and gathering, represents our body, while Jacob, the tent-dwelling thinker, represents our mind. Or maybe it's just a story of two twins who cheated, stole, and vowed to kill each other. Either way, in the end, it's a story of forgiveness. But it's not forgiveness with flowers and rainbows. At the end of the story, Jacob and Esau aren't best friends. They don't hang out or merge their households or maybe even ever interact again until Isaac's burial. But this, too, is an important message that forgiveness doesn't always mean that relationships are completely restored or renewed afterwards. I think I grew up understanding forgiveness as a mending of relationships, of bringing two people back together when something had torn them apart. But really, that's not it at all. Forgiveness can be one-sided. 
Forgiveness is one person's deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment, to release feelings of vengeance towards someone who has harmed them, regardless of whether that person deserves forgiveness or not. Forgiveness is not denying the seriousness of an offense. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting or condoning or excusing others' behavior. But forgiveness is freeing yourself from anger that eats away at you. It allows you to recognize that you have been wronged without letting that wrong be the thing that defines you. It allows you to move on and heal. And forgiveness can be a way of bringing peace. Forgiveness is about releasing another person from our anger or our grudges. It's a gift that we give ourselves as we turn into right relationships with others, God and ourselves. But it doesn't mean that we'll always be best friends with that person afterwards. Peace between two people takes two people, and sometimes the other person will leave us hanging like Jacob did to Esau. Sometimes we can forgive, but the other person is not ready to admit that they hurt us or to take responsibility for their actions, and it's not possible to be in relationship with them, even after we've forgiven. And forgiveness without reciprocation is still a powerful, peaceful, countercultural force. I was in residency in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in the same county on the day that a gunman walked into an Amish school in Nickel Mines and killed five girls, wounded five more, and then took his own life. It was horrific and overwhelming. But what dominated the headlines in the days that came was the response of the Amish community. The same day as the shooting, Amish leaders were at the gunman's widow's home offering her forgiveness. When others stayed away from his funeral, over 40 Amish people attended. I remember hearing people say, I could never do that, or thinking that the Amish must just be simple people for forgiving so completely and quickly. But the Amish were not saying that what the gunman did wasn't horrific. They were not saying that had he lived, he sh there shouldn't be consequences for his actions. They weren't saying that they themselves weren't profoundly and deeply grieving and working through their own emotions. What they were saying is that the gunman was a person. His wife and children were people. And God tells us to love God and love other people. Forgiveness, as commanded by Jesus, is about giving up grudges, giving up your right to revenge and bitterness. As one Amish elder said at the time, the acid of hate destroys the container that holds it. It's not good to hold grudges. Why not let go, give it up, and not let the person who wronged you have power over you? A year after this tragedy, Steve Nolt, who's a professor of history and Anabaptist studies, and who co-authored a book on the response of the Amish after the Nickel Mines tragedy, was attempting to translate the Amish response to this tragedy to what we in the non-Amish community could learn, about, learn from them about forgiveness. These are his words. Amish forgiveness is not an easily transferable technique because it grows out of their collective life and culture. It is the case that the stories we tell each day all year, the images we surround ourselves with, the heroes we celebrate, and the communities of friendship and worship to which we give ourselves will do a great deal to shape how we forgive and the kind of world that makes forgiving so necessary. Such shaping and reshaping is hard work. It's hard to distinguish between forgiveness and pardon, 
to know when reconciliation is possible and when it needs more time. Our culture celebrates violence on many levels. Even more, it insists that the most innate human need is to get one's due, that your most fundamental right is retribution. In such a setting, giving and forgiving are deeply countercultural. These are things for which we need discerning communities, and the Amish and I recommend Christian community long before we think we need them." End quote. And so this community here is important to us as we work individually towards forgiveness. We need to tell our children and ourselves different stories that guide us toward kindness, forgiveness, and the belief that no person is beyond the love of God. But it's hard to be kind when we're in the middle of chaos. It's hard to, be for, it's hard to forgive when we haven't connected with ourselves. So part of this difficult work is that we are compelled to hold ourselves kindly too. We need to take the time to reconnect with ourselves to prepare ourselves to connect with others. Come back to the breath. Come back to the spirit of God filling us, surrounding us, holding us. When your mind spins endlessly, return to your breath. Notice your heartbeat. Feel your body. Let go of grudges. Let go of old hurts. Move forward. Forgive. You are forgiven. Forgive. You are forgiven. This week, I found space in yoga, but there are many ways to slow your mind and reconnect with your body and your inner self. Being in nature, sitting with scripture, meditating, eating good food slowly and thoughtfully, folding laundry piece by piece. There are lots of options, an unending number of them. For centuries, Christians have found that kind of space in the ancient practice of walking a labyrinth. As we consider today the biblical story of Esau's journey towards forgiveness and Jacob's journey away from and back toward home, we can travel on our own journey through the labyrinth. A labyrinth is not a maze. You can't get lost inside it. It's a winding path that always leads us to the center, to God. So we're going to do a seated labyrinth today, with each of us moving through the labyrinth with a finger tracing the path. So I'm going to have each person take one of these. All right, so don't worry, because I know like sometimes we worry about these. Don't worry if you're faster or slower than how I guide. There's not a wrong way to do this. And I'm going to pause as I speak to allow space for you to move through this labyrinth. So I invite you as we start to place a finger at the entrance to your labyrinth. In a moment as you move towards the center, you can offer to God any feelings of unease, worry, or guilt that you carry. If there is something for which you feel you need forgiveness, offer that to God. Take a deep breath and begin tra tracing the path with your finger. As you near the center of the labyrinth, let your finger rest there. As you pause, receive the forgiveness that God offers through Jesus. Breathe in deeply and feel the breath of the Spirit flow through your body, filling you with God's peace.
And as you begin your journey back out of the labyrinth, you have an opportunity to extend forgiveness to anyone toward whom you feel ill will. Remember that forgiving someone does not mean continuing in a harmful relationship. Forgiving means releasing the negative feelings you hold to heal your own heart, connect more deeply with God, and create space for healthy relationships where they are possible. So extend forgiveness in whatever ways you need to as you trace the path back out of the labyrinth. May you find space this week to connect with yourself. May you find space this week to renew your relationship with God. May you find space to forgive others, and may you know that you are forgiven. Amen.